Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. So two weeks ago, I was in my bedroom where I normally wake up. (laughs) And I had this thought that struck me, and it's a thought I've had over the last couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, and this thought is a phrase, and the phrase was, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, Jesus is a prophet. And I just keep thinking about this phrase. Is it back there behind me? Jesus is a prophet. And a lot of times the church likes to talk about Jesus as priest, right? Because a priest goes between God and man, and we need a priest. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. And we need a king, a ruler of the universe, the ultimate judge of the living and the dead the judge of all mankind, the ruler. Out of his mouth, John, the first chapter of John says, all things were created, seen and unseen, animate and inanimate. God created them through the word that is Christ. And then I was thinking, but Jesus is also a prophet. Classically, theologically, Jesus is prophet, priest, king. And not just priest, not just mediator, not just go-between, not just king, not just ruler, but specifically a prophet. He's a prophet in the universal, and he's a prophet in the particular. In the particular, his ministry came to the city of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, and he said the same thing that God says to every prophet. And we'll get there in one second. So I was thinking about politicians, because I was at the politician thing the other day, and um, does anyone know who Jesse Ventura is? WWF former wrestler guy that for a living got beaten over the head with metal chairs and then voted the governor of Minnesota. Like, bad combination if you are to choose a political leader. Let's not get the guy who gets beaten over the head for a living. Ventura is um, a famous atheist and libertarian of some sort. And one of his famous quotes is this, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for the weak-minded for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. And um, I was thinking about the nation where they have most uniformity in belief. Do you know what nation that is? China and North Korea. Who is about to say North Korea, sincere? North Korea, that's where the most uniformity in belief exists. If you're not an atheist, you die. If you decide to be a Christian, you get executed. If you're lucky, you go to a work camp for the rest of your life. So, I mean, the premise that it's strength in numbers is a joke, first of all. But the other thing that's funny is just that religion, organized religion, Christianity specifically he's talking about, is a crutch. And I was thinking about this idea, like, Jesus as just priest maybe could be conceived as that. But Jesus as prophet cannot be conceived as a crutch. Mark said this other famous anti-Christian thing. He said that religion, and he was referring to Christianity specifically because he's talking in a European context, religion is the opiate of the masses. And Marx's idea was like, it, it numbs us to the pain in the world that we're dealing with, that we're going through. We're numbed to the situation because we're just like, I'm going to heaven. Woo! And so we're numbed to all of life. And he really was concerned that you would wake up and see that 
you know, the bourgeois, they have the means of production and they're oppressing you, if you would wake up and feel the pain, the sting, you would overthrow them. Because in secular systems, it's the fault of the system. If I could just change the system, then we would finally have peace. If I could just change the religious system. In Christianity, the fault is yours. In Christianity, the fault is not in the universal. The fault is in the particular. And Christ points his finger at all of us. The moment you start to shift blame away from yourself towards the system, you are not repentant. And what Marx says is it's the system's fault. Do you know what Black Lives Matter says? It's the system's fault. It's this insidious racism. We don't know exactly where it is, but it's somewhere in the system. If we can reform the system, then we'll have freedom. Wrong. If you would be reformed, you would have freedom. If you would repent of your sins and turn to Christ, you would have freedom, independent of the system that exists. And, and it's the secular thrust is to go after the systems. I'm the hero tearing down the systems, but I do nothing about my own wicked heart. Right? But the prophet, I love the prophet, because the prophet, he basically says the same thing in every story from Genesis to Revelation. The prophet has the same exact message. And, and there's this, you know, we know this, there's this new covenant, old covenant bifurcation that is important, but the prophet's message is exactly the same. And so I jump in my Bible encyclopedias and I'm deep diving prophet and I want to get what the meaning of the word is. And it means bubbling forth is, is like as deep as you possibly can get, bubbling forth, something coming out. But really it is someone who just simply represents the word of God. What's bubbling forth is the word of God is bubbling forth. The prophet is someone the best encyclopedic, theologians agree, definition is a prophet declares the word of God. That's kind of it. You know, we live in a, a charismatic context where like every prophetic word is like, I just want to encourage you. But the prophets in the Bible don't show up and just encourage the people. Actually, never, to be honest with you. The prophets come and they say this. This is, their, this is what they say. Okay, uh, God sent me here, and he really kind of likes you guys. And he's got a really pretty amazing plan for you. If you will turn from your sin and destruction to him, he will bless you, or he will keep you, or he will redeem you. There's a lot of kind of variations, but it's very basic. God likes you. And if you turn to him, he's going to bless you. Part A. Part B of every prophetic message from the Old Testament to the New Testament is if you do not, he will destroy you. If you don't turn to him, he's going to kill all of you. Every prophetic message from Genesis to Revelation is the same. You say, God, wait a second. How can that be? Well, let's take a look at some prophets. Jonah. Uh, we talked about Jonah a few weeks ago out in the wild where we were preaching in the subways and uh, Jonah, it says this in Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai. Go to the great city of Nineveh 
and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. Now remember, Nineveh is not a Christian city. It's not an Israelite city. It's not a Christian nation. God says, the time has come for Nineveh. The time is fulfilled. It is end of days. It are, they are the last days, Nicholas Cage level Nineveh time. And if they don't turn, I'm going to kill them all. The motif of a biblical prophet is the same. Do you know the greatest? Jews believe this guy is one of the greatest, if not the greatest biblical prophet in the Old Testament. We don't really think of him as this. Moses. Like we think of Moses as the law. Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophet. That's kind of what we get, symbolic pictures. But Moses is a straight prophet. He shows up to Egypt and he's like, hey, God thinks you're all right. Just give him his people. He's going to let you continue doing your thing. And if you don't, he's going to kill you all. And they're like, no, he's not. You're lying. And then the plagues roll through. And then finally, God kills all of the firstborn of, is of Egypt. And they cry out and lament. And the Israelites go, go free. Now, I'm using this kind of hyperbolic language. It's not exactly hyperbolic because people, God does end societies. We know that, right? He does destroy whole peoples and nations. And so Moses has this initial prophecy to Egypt, but then he has a prophecy to the entire nation of Israel. Actually, I think this is the strongest matrix or framework with which, prophetically, the people of Israel live for the entire existence of the nation of Israel. And it starts this way that every prophet starts. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commandments... The Lord will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. I'll take some of that, please, God. Amen? Amen? All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and young will be blessed. The calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, your basket and kneading trough. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. Verse 13. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord, you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. I mean, that's a pretty phenomenal blessing, right? Always at the top at all times and never at the bottom. That's why we have to be careful with like the anti-prosperity people that want you to live in poverty and be a poor, sad Christian. Because that's not the blessing of God. It's pathetic, actually. I want all of the blessing of God. And then so, unfortunately, in the New Covenant, we generally believe, I know our church doesn't believe this, but we generally have believed that obedience and blessing are not related anymore because we have the new covenant. We have Jesus died on the cross. I want you to know if you believe that accidentally, that's a lie. Blessing and obedience are still intimately related in the New Testament. You want to read some scriptures with me? Yes, Pastor, we do. Um, Matthew 5, 6, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
So this is affirmative action, withholding the filling up of things of the earth. You can't be hungry and thirsty if you're full on all of the things that New York City has to offer. You won't be hungry and thirsty. If your life is full of alcohol and TikTok, you're not going to be hungry for the Lord. You're going to be a spy of China sooner or later. <laughs> Affirmative action equates to blessedness in God's context. Not righteousness. Christ brings us righteousness. But blessedness is correlated to activity in the New Testament. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments and abide in my love, or excuse me, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Jesus didn't say, New Covenant, you don't have to worry about the commandments. It's, it's not necessary anymore. Just have faith. He doesn't say that. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That means the people that just say, well, I listen and I have faith and I'm just working out all my garbage on the side. You're deceiving yourself. You're not walking in faith if you're not actively trying to destroy the sin in your life, actively, aggressively attacking it. I love what my father-in-law says. He says, we don't look for perfection. We look for faithfulness. We're not demanding perfection. We're demanding faithful hearts that will consistently pursue God, consistently repent, consistently live in transparency. 1 John 3.22, and whatever we ask we receive from him, let's find out why. Because we can keep his commandments and do what pleases him. If, we don't, if, we, if I haven't said this yet, I do not want to preach out on the streets all summer long. Confession. Confession. But it's been amazing. And I know God spoke to me to say to do it. So for the next three weeks, we'll be preaching on the street. And then in September sometime, we'll do an in, well, we'll do an in-person in August and then preach for the rest. September, we'll probably do the same until we lock down our space. Because we have a church that loves meetings. Yeah. Loves meetings. Loves to shut the doors. Loves it super dark. And we have a, a world and a nation that's going to hell. And we're afraid. And it really is the truth. It's just that we're afraid. And I'm afraid, and we're all afraid. But the more that we step out, the more that we declare God's word in public, the more courage begins to be imbued in our church and our body and all of you. I want you to know that just your showing up when we're preaching allows people to stop, gives them permission to listen, gives them an opportunity to not feel like a weirdo. There's a crowd here. I'm here. You're doing the work of the ministry as well. Thank you, church. Thank you for doing that. So that was the pro po pro positive side as Moses is a prophet. But then there's a whole negative side. And he remember, he's declaring this to the people of God under the old covenant system. It says, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not follow his commandments and decrees that I am giving you today, all of these curses will come on and overtake you. If you have your Bible on your phone, just pull it out with me. Deuteronomy 28:15 here. Um, because I'm going to skip through it a little bit, but I don't think I've ever heard a pastor ever read through this in a church on a Sunday morning before, because it's terrifying. Uh, and if you have a little kid, I'm not kidding, you may want to close their ears towards the end of this. It's brutal. The curse is brutal. 
Deuteronomy 28, I'm going to start in 17. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and your flocks will be cursed. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send curses and confusion and rebuke in everything you put your hands to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering. Verse 26. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten away the birds from consuming your flesh. Verse 30. You will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and rape her. You will build your house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, and you will not enjoy its fruits. They will lay siege to all the cities through your land until the high and fortified walls which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God has given you. Because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you, you will eat the fruit of your womb. The flesh of your sons and daughters the Lord has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man will have no compassion on his brother and he will not give to them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. It will be all he has left because of the suffering your enemies will inflict on you during the siege of your cities. Verse 58, if you do not carefully follow all the words of this law which are written in this book and do not revere the glorious and awesome name the Lord your God, the Lord will send plagues on you and your descendants harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illness. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt. They will cling to you. The Lord will bring to you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in the book of the law until you are destroyed. Last two verses here. You who are as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God. Listen to this. I don't think I've ever, I've ever focused on this scripture. I certainly have never meditated on it. It says, just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. The prophet comes to a nation and declares the opportunity for blessing. And also, in every story, if the people stay hardened and turn from God, the curse is declared upon them. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says this, So then whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So for the New Testament believer, there is still a correlation between disobedience and punishment. Now it's not a curse and it's not final, but the punishment of God comes to the life of the believer so that they will repent. Because we have eternal potential. And God doesn't want our eternal lives lost. Look at it, it says it right here, it's incredible. incredible. It says, but if we were more discerning, we would not come under such judgment. 32, nevertheless, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined 
so that we will not be condemned with the world. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5, there are those who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and, have, and the powers of the age of, of, to come, when they, if they have fallen away, excuse me, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God and holding Jesus up to contempt. And it says this phrase, it's talking about someone that's followed Jesus and fallen away because of their acts. The milk. The writer of Hebrews is talking at the beginning of 6, just the very basic things. He says, um, for the land that has drunk the rain, which is representing receiving the mercy and grace of God, that has drunk the rain that falls on it and produces a crop useful for those who, who cultivate it, receive a blessing from God. But if that land that has drunk the rain, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed and its end is to be burned. Notice that phrase here, it is near to be cursed, because no son or daughter of God is cursed. No child of God is cursed. Jesus took the curse for us, but we are disciplined when we sin. Now, Moses was a prophet, and he declared to the people of Israel, if you turn away from God, he's going to destroy you all. Jesus was also a prophet. And he comes to the people of Israel in this tripartite role of prophet, priest, and king. But first he comes to them in role of a prophet. And he says to the people of Israel, he goes throughout their land and says, God likes you. He has a plan for you. But if you don't turn to him, he's going to utterly destroy you. I was... Um, Woke up that morning with this phrase, Jesus is a prophet. And Stephen uh, Prouse, who's somewhere here, we shoot a video in, the, in that morning, and I'm talking about how Jesus was a prophet. And I'm like, i got to study more about AD 70, because if you don't know about AD 70, the judgment of God comes upon Jerusalem and everyone dies. A million Jews are killed. The ones that aren't killed are enslaved. It's insane. But we don't talk about it in the church because we think... The end days are just our days, and the end days didn't already happen to a people. There was an end of time for a people. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, I have to study this subject more. So I buy a book called The Destruction of Jerusalem. It was written in 1805. It was written by a, a lawyer and a, a guy that was a, both lawyer and theologian and author. I was like, this is my people. Okay. <laughs> I get the book. And I start reading it, and I open to the first page of the book, and at the top of the first page, it says, Jesus was a prophet. And I'm like, God, what are you saying? It says in this, Mark 1.14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Gal Galilee. This is what Jesus said everywhere he went, proclaiming the gospel and saying, four points, Follow them with me. The time is fulfilled. Everyone say, the time is fulfilled. I don't like the repeating thing. I'm not doing that anymore. Second, <laughs> the kingdom of God is at hand. Third, repent. And fourth, believe in the gospel. The first thing that Jesus says 
to the people of Israel is the time is at hand. In different translations, it says a different way. Some of them, you can imagine a cup right here that's about this tall, and sand has filled the cup, and there's only a little bit of space left for the sand. The time has been filled up. It's the end of time for you people of Israel. For the covenant that God had established between Israel and himself, the time has come, and it's the end of days. The gospel message must come with a chronological imperative. You do not know if you are going to live through the rest of the week. We've stopped preaching it because we think it's doofy. And we think it's gross. But God, if you remember two years ago, a couple of hundred thousand people died. Do you remember that? Do you know on the news people are dying suddenly all the time? because of a particular agent that they took into their body. The gospel message comes with the imperative that the time is near. The time is here for you to make a decision. And when I look at the city of New York, and I look at the state of the West, and I look at girls that are 11 years old that are being given drugs that stop estrogen development and so their spines are not fusing together and they're being permanently hunchbacked I'm saying the time is near for the West the time has come I don't know when Jesus said the time is at hand at 33 AD and it was 70 AD and he wipes the whole place out I know for the believer there's an imperative to declare that the time is at hand my friend, Pastor Boyan, who pastors in Queens, he was in Bosnia two weeks ago, and he sent me a picture, and it's the U.S. Embassy, and there's a giant 100-foot rainbow flag on the outside of the U.S. Embassy. He said, David, this is the only place in the whole nation that I saw this. And I called my mom, and I said, look at what's on the U.S. Embassy. And she, he said, is this a Pride Month thing? And she said, son, it's been there for six months. In, in Nahum, if you don't know this, the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum are both prophets that are speaking to Nineveh. Did you know that? Yeah. So Jonah comes and he declares this message. If you don't turn, God's going to destroy you all. Your sin has come up before him. And they repent and they turn. And God gives them grace. And 150 years later, they fall back into their patterns of sin again. The same patterns that they had been in. And Nahum comes and gives them the final prophetic message before God destroys Nineveh and all of Syria. And it says this in Nahum 3.4. This is one of the primary reasons why in the second chapter of Nahum, excuse me, third chapter, it says, because of the many harlotries of the harlot in seductive mistresses who betray nations by prostitution, that there was an influence from the people of Nineveh around the world with sexual immorality, proliferating it among the nations. And God says, your time has come. There are lots of sins in the world that are bad. Sexual sin 
implicates the birth of human lives. When we think of sexual sin, especially those of us who have dealt with it or struggled with it or overcome it, we think in this very personal me sense. But God doesn't think in that sense. He thinks in the production of human lives. Progeny, children, offspring, humanity continuing or humanity ending. He thinks way in a way grander perspective than we think. And we have a city and a nation that's proliferating darkness at a level that we haven't seen in the history of the world before. In part because of our technology, in part because of this left-right divide. Can you believe that there was a movie that came out two weeks ago exposing child trafficking and half of our nation was like, shut it down? There are, there are theaters turning off the movie there are one of the articles, I don't remember, Jeff sent it to me. I can't remember if it was the Times or the Rolling Stones that said, this is a movie for fathers that have brain worms. It's a movie that wants to expose child sex trafficking. And there's a, a, half of our nation is saying, this is a joke, it's not real, while they groom children and chop their body parts off. And little girls' spines aren't fusing together because people are experimenting with sexual anarchy. And we're like, you know what? I'm just going to preach a happy gospel message some more. Jesus loves you so much, buddy boy. And he's got so many big marshmallows for you up in heaven. I was thinking about this this morning. And I was thinking about Jeff because I was thinking about this article that he sent me. I was thinking, what if Jeff and I were trying to persuade a child it's not even a child, an adult, standing in the road, and a semi-truck is coming at 90 miles an hour, teetering towards this individual, but he can't see it or hear it. And we just keep saying, hey, there's great green grass over here. We have a picnic over here off, off the street. There's a great picnic over here. I don't want to tell you about the truck because I'm afraid I might offend you. There's some desserts. My grandma makes great pie, and it's right over here. And that's not untrue. But the judgment of God is barreling towards a nation and a people. And it's coming, and the church is afraid to declare it. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus still is a prophet. And he said to the people of Israel in the particular, if you do not turn your lives to the Father, if you do not repent of your sins and turn to him, destruction is coming upon you quickly. He says four things. The time has come. We always think it's like, oh, last days, you know, left behind series. That phrase, the last days, is used a lot in the scripture. Because there is an end of time for many different peoples in many different times and seasons in the world. Do you know that? Right? Like, that makes sense. There's not only one end times. There's end times for nations. There was an end times for the city of Nineveh. Genesis 49.1 And Jacob called his sons, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. The sons of Israel didn't say, Well... 
Pack it up. It's the last days, end of the world. And every judgment of God that comes crashing down upon a culture, the Father saves and protects his sons and daughters. In the history of the destruction of Jerusalem, there is not one recorded Christian death and the death of the million people that died in that city. According to this book I just read, that every single Christian was saved and preserved. This is part of the paradox of God's love. It's so massive, it's hard to conceive, and his judgment is also massive and hard to conceive, and we have decided as a church, not only will we not conceive of it, we will not even talk about it. Acts 2, 16 and 17, but this is which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. When? In the last days. What last days particularly are we talking about in the book of Joel? The last days of the old covenant. The last days of the people of Israel. The last days of that nation state at that time in that epoch in human history. Hebrew 1.12 Hath in these last days God hath spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things by whom he also made the world. And so part of the declaration of the gospel is the declaration of the chronological imperative. You don't have all the time in the world. And it may be just as simple as you may turn from God and have a hardened heart tomorrow. You don't know. Hebrews, in the third chapter, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his heart, do not harden your hearts. Today, imperative, chronological imperative. You don't have all the time you think you have. The kingdom of the heaven is at hand. Now, this is something, especially the charismatic church, we like to talk about because we like miracles. And I like miracles. Rock and roll. Give me some miracles, Lord. I'm not kidding. But the kingdom of God comes with the justice of God as well. When you're talking about the establishment of a kingdom, you don't primarily mean the bread with which it brings. You're generally primarily talking about the system of law and rule that it brings to establish. And the kingdom of heaven brings grace and beauty and mercy to those who have turned to Christ and judgment eternally to those who have not. The time has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is about to be established upon you permanently. Third, so repent. And this is an issue because the church doesn't like to say what to repent of. And so when we've been in the subway, we've been saying things to repent of. Because the universalists and the attractional guys don't want to say what to repent of. How can they repent if we don't say what to repent from? And I think we can say it in an eloquent and persuasive way where we, because we love people and the truck is barreling towards them that we're able to say, you can't stand here in the road. You can't do that. And then finally, and this is the good news part, it says believe. Because God just asks us to believe and accept his spirit and be changed by him. So I know what I'm doing wrong. I'm repenting. I'm turning. And then just simply believe justifies me and saves me and purifies me. That's the good news. 
that the judgment of God barreling towards us, deservedly so, is abated by belief in his son. That's incredible news. It's not good news if there's no judgment. If there's universalism, it's not good news. If we're not willing to tell people the whole story, it's not really that good. Jesus was a prophet. Matthew 24, Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples. The disciples came to him and they called his attention to this building. And we don't really get Herod's temple. This, this temple was called Herod's temple. It's massive white marble and gold structure. It's covered in gold all over the place. They say when the sun shone upon it, it would almost burn your eyes. It was so beautiful. It was the greatest structure built in the first century BC. There was not a greater structure on earth built at the time. Herod's temple, second temple. And so when they're outside of the Jewish temple, we don't have a concept for it. And they're looking at it and they're talking about the buildings. Look, the disciples came to draw his attention to the buildings. It would be like looking at the World Trade Center and being like, look at how huge this thing is. You know when you stand by it, you don't even want to look up because you're going to fall over? Like, it's massive. And Jesus saying, shortly it's going to be rubble. And all the stones will be spread throughout. And the whole city will be destroyed. And he begins the Olivet Discourses, which are his final public discourses to the people of Israel, giving the final judgment. God likes you, return to him, miracles, making wine at a wedding, party, beauty, kindness, mercy. And at the end it says, it's going to get horrifically bad if you don't turn. See to it that no one deceives you, continuing in verse 24, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ and will deceive many and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But the end is still to come, and nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pang. And Jesus is talking about final judgment destruction coming upon the people of Israel. You've got to understand, when Jesus says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, in our CNN Fox context, we're like, oh yeah, that must have been all the time. This was during the Pax Romana. This is the most peaceful period in history that's ever existed. They called it, historians call it, five generations of, mirac of, of miracles. There's no wars at the time. There's not turbulation at the time. Jesus says, Christs are going to come in my name. One year after his ascension, a Christ figure comes. His name is Dosieth. He arises and says he's the great power of God. He's going to split the sea. And he brings all these Jews out. And the provincial ruler says, go kill those guys. They're trying to do an uprising. For the next 30 years, Christ figures arise saying, declaring that they're Messiah, leading the Jews away, and the provincial rulers attack them and kill them and disperse them, leading up to 70 AD. Wars and rumors of wars. The people, the Jewish people start to get frustrated. Um, one of the Roman leaders says, I want a statue of myself. Caligula says, I want a statue of myself in this temple that we built, P.S., by the way. And it starts a rumor that they're going to go to war with Rome. And the people of Israel are terrified that Rome is going to come.
but they're also obstinate and they refuse any of his requests. An earthquake takes place under the same period under Claudius that's so severe that the government stops taxing for five years. Signs from heaven. Josephus says that one year before 70 AD, a meteor shaped like a sword hung over the city of Jerusalem for one year. Signs in heaven. On the eighth of the months of Xanthicus, at the ninth hour of the night, there shone around the altar, this is the second sign, the circumjacent buildings of the temple, a light equal to the brightness of the day, which continued for the space of half an hour. Third, another sign that happened in the temple, and there's a lot of especially kind of left-leaning um, theologians that reject most all of these signs because of this sign. It, Josephus said this, and remember, Josephus was not a Christian. He was a secular Jewish historian that was working for the Romans, detailing what happened in the first century. He said the high priests in that last year were leading a heifer to the altar to be sacrificed, a female cow, and she brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. A sign that was baffling and it tried and the Pharisees tried to hide the fact that it happened. Because God was saying, Your sacrificial system is over, the days have come, it's all done. I've given you a lamb for the sins of the world. No more will you atone your sins with cows anymore. This is over. And then in, uh, between 67 and 71 AD, uh, Jerusalem is sieged. One million Jews are killed. The temple is destroyed. There's not space in the city of Jerusalem to crucify any more people because they have taken the space and they have taken all the trees from one mile around the city of Jerusalem to crucify the Jews. Josephus said the city was ravaged by rape, murder, famine, and cannibalism, even cannibalism of children by their own mothers. This is literally the fulfillment of the prophecy that Moses gave the people of Israel. Numbers 28, because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you, you will eat the fruit of your womb. Word for word, line for line, fulfilled exactly. It's, I don't understand, it's weird. I wonder if it's a deception on the church that we, we forget that God judges nations and he literally fulfilled his word exactly with the people of Israel. And we think like, well, there's going to be some kind of rapture and mark of the beasts that happen now. Like, this is the story that every prophet says to every nation. God likes you. He asks you to repent. He has incredible things for you. If you do not, his judgment comes with ferocity. That last verse of Deuteronomy, it pleased him to bless you when you were obedient. It will please him to crush you in your disobedience. For the Christian, they were all preserved. Jesus said this in the book of Matthew. He said, for those who hold on to the end, you will be preserved. And so, again, the greatness and majesty of God for the people that he loves is insane. Unreal. 
I know that you cannot promote insanity sexually, destruction of children around the world, and God allow your nation to exist. It cannot happen. Most of you know the Arizona Christian University study that said the LGBTQ rate in high schools is now at 40%. People identifying as LGBTQ. We didn't use, we used to be like, it's gonna be, you're just born that way, so it's just random, like one every one million, it's just somebody gets that gene. It's at 40% now. It will be majority of our nation in the next 20 years. It will be. Jonah was a prophet. He was called to go to a, a wicked city. A, unsaved people. They didn't have a covenant with God. And say, God likes people. They're made in his image and likeness. He has a heart that goes out to them. And he asks them to turn to him. Jonah's father, his name means truth. And I think that's telling because Jonah, his name means dove. And it's in part just he's scared. Now, there's a part of the purity that the church is like, I don't want to touch the world. It's too dirty. I don't want to touch people in the LGBTQ community. They're too dirty. I don't want to touch any of this stuff. It's too dirty. And he's flighty and he's afraid to declare the truth of God's word, both his beauty and his justice. And he jumps in the boat and he's swallowed by a whale and the whale represents death because it's the death to self that allows us to say, I'll declare God's word independent of what happens to me. It's part of that John the Baptist motif of the camel, uh, camel skin and the, and the, you know, like he didn't care what anyone thought. He doesn't care. His job is to declare the message of God. And so Jonah goes to the people of Nineveh, a wicked nation, and he declares the gospel, the gospel in the context, I don't mean the gospel of the new covenant, I mean turn away from your sin. They turn which is shocking. There's no miracles. You notice that? In the book of Jonah, there's zero miracles. He just declares the word of God and they turn. And then he sits underneath the tree and he's sun's out, he's got some shade and the caterpillar comes and consumes the leaves and the sun beats down on him and he's so angry and he's cursing and he's frustrated and God says, you care more about your comfort than you do about all of these Ninevites that were about to die. And the church right now, today, cares more about its comfort than a world that is lost and going to hell. They care more about their own well-being and safety, afraid of what would happen if I offend someone, more than they do a world that's lost and dying and go to hell. They care more about sitting in the shade than being in a place where there's a potential that I could be persecuted. And when I read the book of Revelation, the faithful churches are faithful in obedience and walking in righteousness and faithful, secondly, to the testimony of Jesus, to declaring his testimony. Worship team, you can come up. And so we continue as a church on this very unique journey. I had three or four pastors, different pastors, give me prophetic words just as we were starting out. And they were like, David, we feel like God has a call 
for you to be a John the Baptist. Your church is going to be a prophetic voice to the city. You're going to wander around and declare the gospel. And um, I was thinking to myself, yes, okay, a couple of times, then we get a building. Because I want comfort. And I, I mostly care about my comfort more than I do about the lost. And I want to be convicted of my sin. And I want to say, God, would you build this into the DNA of our church? That we're people that declare your truth. And that our comfort is secondary. It's easy for us to champion the pro-life movement. The babies that we don't want to get lost in the womb. It's easiest for us to champion that. It's a lot harder for us to go after the lives that are currently on their way to hell. It's harder. And so church, would you continue to be bold with me? Would you continue to be like Jesus with me and be a prophet to our city and our nation where we talk about the beauty and kindness and grace of a loving God. And we also say that there is a truck barreling down towards you. A truck that when it meets you, you will be in eternity and the scripture says there is given one life for man than the judgment. And there is no second chances. And I don't know how long God's mercy will extend over New York City or over the West or over our nation. But as it does, let us be like our Lord Jesus and declare his prophetic message to the world around us. Amen, church. Stand up with me. Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Acts 20.27 says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we're trying to do at King's Church. We're trying to steward God's word and share it to a generation. If you want to partner in us sharing the whole counsel of God's truth, please text KCNYC to 77977 and partner with us here at King's Church to get God's message, his whole counsel, all over the place on podcasts and on radio and around the world so believers like you would be encouraged. Thanks.